All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, welcome back to Making the Argument. And today we've got something a little bit different for you. We're going to talk about two things you should hate about the Constitution. I had kind of surprised you with that one, didn't I? Yeah, that's right. We're usually pretty big fans of the Constitution here on Making the Argument, but these are two things that we are definitely not fans of. And we're going to explain how they came about, what the consequences were, and uh, why they should go away. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Today's episode is inspired by two members of our volley chat, both Ben and Caleb. We appreciate their input on today's episode. If you would like to offer an idea for a future episode, I hope you'll go to the description and click that link, join our volley chat, and participate there. We would love to hear from you. If you walk away from today's episode understanding more about these two items that we do not like in the Constitution, I hope you'll let us know in the YouTube comment section and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, an okay person with us, as always, my beautiful bride, Tina, Queen of the Bees. Hello, everyone. Then we have Christian Hines, our resident historian and political prognosticator. Hello. And I know he's been, I know this is the sort of episode Christian geeks out about, too. I think there may be some arguments that go back and there forth may in this be a episode. Bit. I'm there excited for a, that. There may be a little bit. There may be a little, and then, of course, producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's get into it. Like I said... Here on Making the Argument, we're actually big fans of the United States Constitution. We actually think, as, as political documents go, um, pretty much a grand slam. Uh, like, on, on most cases, there's some obvious exceptions in that, especially sure. in the earlier, before we had, like, the 13th and 14th Amendments, the 19th Amendments. These were all good additions to the Constitution and enshrining things like equal protection before the law and, um, you know, women's right to vote. You know, these were obviously things that did not appear in the original uh, that were, were good additions. But... Not every addition to the Constitution has been a change for the better, at least in our opinion. And we're going to jump right in with the, uh, the well, first hang on. one. Look, we need to guess, because I was going to guess the First and Second Amendments that you were going to hate on, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they're still too restricting. No, the, um, so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to bring up our first one here. And this is the 17th Amendment to the Constitution. And I'm going to read this off for you. And then, again, we're going to kind of explain, you know, because a lot of times when you read some of the, the jargon within, um, you know, legal language, it can get a little bit you know, confusing. But here's what it comes down to. 17th minute. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. The electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislatures. When vacancies happen in the representation of any state in the Senate, the executive authority of such state shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies, provided that the legislature of any state may empower the executive thereof to make temporary appointments until the people fill the vacancies by election as the legislature may direct. The amendment shall not be so construed as to affect the election or term of any senator chosen before it becomes valid as part of the Constitution. So you're probably thinking, what? <laughs> like, and, and what? why does that make you so angry? Why would you use language like, I hate this amendment? Here's what this means. This changed the Constitution in such a way to where senators, those serving in the state Senate, or excuse me, in the, in the U.S. Senate, were no longer appointed by state legislature, legislatures. They were elected by the people at large within that state. And you may be thinking, but Nick, this is a good thing, right? The people are having a direct say in the the election of their U.S. senators. Like, why why would you be like? How could you possibly say this is something that was damaging to the country as a whole? And I'm going to answer that with one word: federalism. Right? You have to understand 
why this was done in the first place. A lot of people look through the lens now, especially any of us that are alive right now grew up in an era where we all voted for our U.S. senators. And so it would seem like, well, this is, why would you take that power away and give it to the state legislature? Well, again, if you understand what Madison was trying to achieve, what many of our founders were trying to achieve when they were talking about having a constitutional republic that operated off of democratic processes, one of the things Madison was very, very serious about was that when too much power is centralized or or controlled in, in one body, you get tyranny. And so the idea was is that as the country grows and as we have more states, that we would have these checks and balances. And those checks and balances would be between different branches of government within the federal side. It would also be between the federal and the states. And it was also this idea that in order to get a, um, you know, a, a good debate you know, present when we're talking about policy, that you had to balance kind of the, the popular will with, you know, strong, good, deliberate, reasoned debate. And the idea was is that because people could be, you know, passionately whipped up into a frenzy because of a crisis or something that was going on and say, well, we want this now. Whereas if you actually strung out the debate a little longer and passions had time to kind of like cool down and people had a chance to like, again, come together and have a reasonable conversation, you usually got better policy as a result, right? And so that was the whole idea. So part of the the reason for the Senate in the first place, right? Why not just have a House of Representatives? Part of the reason for the Senate was twofold. One, it was kind of that more of a deliberative process. That's why they get elected every six years, not every two. Um, and then part of it, too, was the Senate was supposed to be the body that represented the states, right? So the House was the one that was very close to the people, elected on directly by the people. That was kind of representing the popular will. And then the Senate was supposed to be there as kind of a check with respect to representing state interests. Because, again, we're, we are a republic of republics. And so each republic, each state got representation and the state legislature appointing those positions they thought was a more appropriate way to do that. Right? So the argument for the 17th amendment was this is going to be more democratic. The argument against the 17th amendment is essentially, well, no, what you're doing right now is you're actually reducing or, or you're changing the nature of what the Senate was always supposed to be, which was supposed to be representative representative of the state. Christian, did I do a fairly good job? I think so. I mean, some of the historical context behind it was is that the when the uh, 17th Amendment was being proposed, this was kind of at the height of like the the populist movement in the U.S. In fact, they're literally these are all considered well, progressive populist era. slash progressive. Yeah, progressive. 1913. So by the way, in the 1880s and really into the 1890s, the Populist Party, which was a third party in the U.S., um, it was like the premier third party. They actually won a whole bunch of electoral votes in the. Uh, last election that Grover Cleveland ran in in the 1890s, um, they actually included in their platform direct election of senators. Um, they had a bunch of other proposals that we would find somewhat left wing, like they wanted to nationalize the railroads and stuff like that. But um, the the argument at the time, and and it wasn't just the populist because when the populist um, when the populist party kind of dissolved at the very end of the 1800s, it the reason it dissolved was the Democrats. Um, basically absorbed the party. They adopted so many planks of the populist party platform that there was no reason for there to be a third party. And in large part, they did so because of a guy named William Jennings Bryan. Oh boy, here we go. Um, The uh, great grandfather of the progressive movement, modern day American leftism comes straight out of William Jennings Bryan, especially within the democratic party. Um, But the so Brian ran on this. Um, he ran for president like four times. Yeah. First time he ran was in uh, 1896. He lost all four times. That's the reason you never learn about him in school because <laughs> we don't learn about presidential losers, even if they run for four times. <laughs> but um, he ran for president four times, 1896, 1900, uh, um, 1904, and 1908, I believe. Um, that sounds about right. And um, – Long story short, actually, it might have been three times. I think he skipped 1904, um, but he did run in 1908. I know that. That was the last time he ran, and that was also his worst performance. But I guess they were getting sick and tired of him by that point. But <laughs> long story short, Brian's entire argument was was just a straight appeal to emotion, basically. Um, he had come out of one of these Midwestern states. I believe he was from Nebraska, 
And uh, he had been in the House of Representatives. He had actually, I believe, tried to run for U.S. Senate and had lost because it was the state legislatures that were mm. the ones in charge of appointing them. And um, most of the support for this this progressive era reform were coming out of these um, were coming out of southern states and midwestern states. And the entire argument was basically that like. These coastal elitists in the Northeast and New England are running the show when they have all the money and power and we need to return power to the people. And um, unfortunately for us, I would argue, the progressive movement push to elect popular you know, senators by popular vote was actually achieved in large part because there were a few Republicans that supported it as yeah. well. I believe it was William Randolph Hearst, who was the giant newspaper magnate, actually like started throwing it into like all of his newspaper articles about why we need direct election of senators. Yeah. I think the reason that he wanted that was because he could influence the general public through his newspapers sure. a whole lot easier than he could yeah. individual members That's of the true. state legislature. That's a great point. Because he had a empire, media empire. He's the reason, by the way, that he defeated William Jennings Bryan in 1896. William Randolph Hearst was a huge supporter of William McKinley in that election. And he used his newspaper empire in order to get William McKinley elected. But he couldn't take control of the U.S. Senate because... This, this, it, is, this is all, real quick. This is also the newspaper man that essentially got us into the Spanish-American War. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's he he the, was famous for saying, <laughs> you you provide the pictures and I'll provide the war. Yeah. Uh, and that was the whole sinking of the USS Maine and, and you know, the invasion of Cuba and then, yeah, wow. Philippines. Yeah, he, he was a, I mean, he does not have a good rep reputation now. By the way, speaking of him and media empires in general, and also a little bit of militarism. That's going to be brought up a little bit later in this episode. So, I mean, I don't even think Nick intentionally hinted at that. But this is going to come up in a big way yep. when we get to the second part. But but to wrap up the, the whole story of the 17th Amendment, it really, it kind of, if you don't actually read like Madison's notes on the Constitution. And you don't look at the debates that the Founding Fathers had when they crafted our, our legislative branch. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. Which is why it was so appealing, because at the turn of the century, most people were looking at it as this is just a fairness issue. One man, one vote. Why shouldn't we be able to elect our representatives that are sure. voting for us in Congress? It is like when you look at it from that point of view, it makes sense. But then you, you look at the fact that we already had that in the House of Representatives. That was the whole point. The whole point was the United States was not a unitary government. It was a federation of co-equal states. It was a republic of republics. And you had one element of that republic because it wasn't it wasn't a federal it, it wasn't a, a confederacy it wasn't like the European Union or something like that it was a country it, it wasn't an association it was the United States was a country but it wasn't a unitary state so one half of that country came through the people through their directed elected representatives in the house that you could throw them out of office in two years just like that you could you could turn them over immediately yeah. you could turn over the whole entire chamber if you wanted to. But in the Senate, we intentionally stagger the results of elections into threes. Even if everybody in the Senate is voted out in an election cycle, you can't vote out 100% of all the senators. And they did that on purpose yeah. because the Senate is an institution that represents the states. Originally, it was supposed to be. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And well, by taking that power, and I'll, I'll end with this, by taking that power away from the states and then just making it a popular election contest, just like the House, now they're just glorified House members, basically. You have, in effect, destroyed federalism. So I got a question here. Why is the state legislator, legislature in a better position to elect those senators rather than the people? So if you if you look at it from the disposition of how, how am I representing my states? Because some people will say, well, you know, it's not the state legislature that reflects the will of the state. It should be the people of the state. Okay, well, the people still elect the state legislature. Right. But one of the things that, and, and George Will actually points this out when he's talking about Madison, is like, you know, direct democracy is the idea where everybody votes on everything. A republic is where people vote on the people that will vote on the things, right? Or, the, or that will sure. make the decisions about like policy and things like that. So the idea is, is my job as a representative within the state legislature is to be in tune with respect to not only my constituents, but what is going on at the state level. Okay. What's going on with our infrastructure, our education, our security, our spend, like all of these things, right? I'm supposed to be, compared to my constituents, right, a subject matter expert on what is going on, and that's why they send me there to do that, right? right. Like, I collect a salary to do this. I'm expected to do it. I go down to Richmond. I, I'm So the idea is is that your state legislature is going, to, is going to be in tune with respect to the issues of that state, 
and how federal policy is directly impacting that state. And so that's, that's a, a part of that thinking, that mindset, right. is that I, I have a bunch of people that are dedicated to this state, and they're going to select someone that is then going to go and reflect those interests mm. up at the federal level with you know, the intensity and, and breadth of knowledge necessary. Now, you, you can make arguments all day long, well, I, my, I don't like my state legislature. Okay, fine. Right. But but that was the point. That was the thinking. And there was very sound reasoning for this. This is again, this goes back to the whole idea of you don't just rip up fence posts without understanding why they were put there in the first place. And I think you had a lot of arguments and I see it today. Like I, w I was watching uh, a while back. Somebody was arguing that, well, the reason why Madison wanted this is because he wanted an entity that was going to like protect like the kind of the, the wealthy and the corporate. And so that's why. Oh, oh, OK, fella. Right? Or it, it was because, once again, Madison put an, an incredible amount of, of time and effort and work. And like and I I have stood in the library where he pretty much locked himself in there for a year at Montpelier, just immersing himself on why is it that republics fail once they get to a certain size? Why is it that the only places where we can have these sort of democratic processes and representative government, why is it that when they get to a certain degree, they, they fall into empire or monarchy or despotism or tyranny? Like, why does that happen? And the big push was concentration of power. And so that is why when we talk about competing interests within our government body, like, why do we have... Uh, not just a legislature, but a bicameral legislature, a House and a Senate. Why do we have an executive branch and a judicial branch and a legislative branch? Like, why is it separate in that way? This was not just because, well, this might be neat. Let's try it this way. No, it was because they spent like years and years studying what had worked and what had failed. And they were desperately trying to look for something that would respect that, that representative government that would respect individual liberty, right? Not just the ability to vote for people. Right. But, but putting government within its proper place and making sure that no one entity within the government accumulated too much power. And this was a part of that process. And by just saying, oh, we're going to do popular election, you're, you're, you're misunderstanding why it was put that way in the first place. And, and again, I think it's, it's one of these things. And, and again, George Will <laughs> talks about this because he thinks we should repeal the something. And he goes, I know a lost cause when I see it. He goes, I, I know that the chances of me convincing anyone that this is a this is a bad idea and that we should go back to a system that was, you know, rooted in the, in understanding the federalist mindset when we established it. He goes, but th that's the result. The result is, and, and let me just put one other thing here from a historical perspective. A lot of this too came around. Um, some of the backdrop was that there's been a lot of corruption with certain, you know, people that had basically paid off members of the legislature to get into the, uh, the U S Senate and things like that. So it, it's not as if, well, that's no different than now. Well, I mean, what it, what it comes to, what it comes do. down to is there's no such thing as a perfect system right this side of heaven right there just isn't we're we're trying to find the one that does the best job of not you know again concentrating power and leading to tyranny with regard to what we lost by implementing this amendment um do you feel like uh there has been some accountability to the state uh -huh. that was lost and also um do you feel like it implementing this kind of furthered the irrelevancy of the state in the eyes of the federal government. So the federal government now has autonomy from the state almost. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I don't think that, um, again, question. I don't, I don't think senators from states now look at themselves as I'm representing, you know, my state it's I'm representing like my voters. Now, again, you, you can make the same argument that, well, okay, well before they were just representing the majority party within the state legislature, um, so I, I, I get that this isn't a perfect argument, but back when your U.S. Senate representation was determined by the state legislature, I think there was a much closer tie between what the, the body of that state had elected to represent itself as and its representation, the state's representation in the Senate. And we don't have that anymore. It's just popular election, right? Like, like Christian said, I think that was a great way to put it. It's just a glorified House body. Right. That's all it is. If the legislature was to elect the senator, I think that voters would be more inclined to pay attention to what was happening in the General Assembly in the Senate. That's probably I, true. I think that's a really – actually, I think that's a really good – I hadn't thought of that, but, yeah, I think that's a good argument. They might pay a little more attention to their state 
um, legislatures if if we're the ones deciding who their U.S. Senate representation was going to be. Now, keep in mind, I mean, we know how this game is played. Yeah. If we, hypothetically, if the 17th Amendment had either never been adopted or been repealed at some point, it's not like we'd be sending a whole bunch of Ron Pauls to the U.S. Senate. No. Rand Paul, as yeah. amazing of a senator as he is, probably would not currently be in the U.S. Senate. But you know who else would not be in the U.S. Senate right now? Tim Kaine would not be in the U.S. Senate right now. Mark Warner would not be in the U.S. Senate right Right. now. Because for all those years that Republicans controlled the state legislature in Virginia, we absolutely would not have sent them. At best, we would have sent a a actual moderate Democrat when when the legislature was divided or or when when Democrats had control of one chamber. But we would not have sent these two that have just, quite frankly, I mean— Warner and Kane basically just vote like they live in D.C. They they right. don't necessarily vote based on the interests of the state, let alone the state legislature. Well, no, they vote they vote in the interest of the major population centers in the state. Well, yeah. so so basically, the rural areas get no voice. Can I say another thing here that I, I think is important to understand? Um, and and this is you can get in debates about this all day long. It really comes from there, there's there's your philosophical understanding and what you think is ideal. There's also, um, you know, kind of an understanding of human nature and what has happened over time and, and how do we account for that. We used to, there, there wasn't really popular elections for president for a good portion of the country's history. Oh, really? You voted for your electors. Now, this is all a formality now, right? Like the electors go to whoever wins the popular vote within the state. But it used to be that electors actually sat down and debated who would be president. Right. And electors could could switch. It, it wasn't it, it. Yeah, you were still voting for president. Right. But electors had a lot more power with respect to how they cast that vote until states started passing individual state laws, which said, no, the electors are bound by. You know what, what this popular, reminds me of what, what the popular vote was within the Senate. And, and before we get to that, let me just say part of the argument here. And, and for the people that are just like 100% democracy, they want to get as close to pure democracy as they can. Of course, they're going to hate this. But again, part of the reason why the Senate was set up the way it was is because it was actually encouraging kind of a more, um, I don't know if moderate's the right word, but it was it was supposed to be more of a deliberative body to where, again, that your your representatives in the U.S. Senate weren't as concerned with kind of like the the you know, high passion element of whatever was going on in the moment, right? They were supposed to be in a position where, hey, it's six years in between elections. You know, I, I've got my state's concerns to think about here. Um, and it's about, okay, we understand that maybe a, a crisis just happened or a bad thing just happened or something that's really galvanized national attention has just happened. But we need to take a long view mm-hmm. of how this is going to be affected, how potential legislation would be carried out. What are the ramifications of that? Like, now, if you if you believe if you don't believe in any of that, if you're like I don't care about a bunch of you know wise people sitting in a room or you know theoretically wise people sitting in a room, I want action. Well, then yeah, you hate this, right? But if you're someone that's convinced that there's a lot of times when when people get caught up and fervor about something that demand you know in, in major changes to something that that could be bad in the long run, and you think that cooling off period is a good thing, well, then stuff like this is actually beneficial to that. Yeah, making. Decisions based on emotion rarely works out in personal life or politically. Um, but what I was going to say is that this it, it kind of reminds me, what we do now, kind of reminds me of slating. Do you remember slating? Yeah. Where, uh, you know, we're talking about the electors not being able to change their vote or adjust. Um in the Republican Party, we have uh, conventions sometimes, and there was quite a bit of controversy stirred up a few years back over certain counties that, that did what's called slating. And they would send like one or two people with it. Basically, the committee would vote on the uh, person that they wanted as far as, let's say, the party chairman or whatever it would be. They vo- voted. Based on that vote, they sent an, they sent basically an elector, a delegate, who would stick to that specific vote. Hmm. And, and they would only send one so that they didn't have to send a ton of people. And it got, it was very, there was some yeah. accusations of corruption and things like that. But it's really, this, this is a very interesting topic because, because a senator is elected every, every six years, you're looking at if the state... Uh, delegate or the state um, 
Legislature. Legislature, sorry, is the one who elects them. By the time they're coming back for a reelection, you're going to have quite a bit of turnover in the state yeah. because we we have new people as delegates and senators of the state all the time. So you, it would be a brand new makeup each time. Well, I mean, well, not all, not not entirely, but it. You're well, talking. You're. If you had a significant enough change in the state legislature, because that's what it requires, right? A significant change, not just. Not just a changeover of, you know, five people here. In like a few years ago when we lost. Yeah, when you lost, that would have been reflected yeah. in our representation in the United States Senate, provided that that senator was up for re- reappointment, basically, by state legislature. Like halfway that through that or but, something. But again, so there's still that ability to reflect popular will. It's just adding a couple <laughs> adding a couple of things in between. And the, and the purpose was to get a more deliberation. Mm-hmm. And then again, to have more uh, focus on representing the state. So... That's why I think, you know, you know, we think that the 17th Amendment was actually, you know, a bad thing for the republic. Sure. Um, let's move on to the next one. Now, there's a debate. There is a debate that here must between be Christian and I. There's a debate between Christian and I on this one because I think this is the single worst um, thing that has been added to the Constitution. That makes sense, Christian. Okay, and, the fact that you said added to the Constitution makes it a little bit muddled because I would say the Federal Reserve Act is possibly the single worst piece of legislation to come out which of the was era. actually the same year yep so oh, not not I, and not by accident explain what the amendment is and then i'm okay. going to mention that the person who crafted this amendment also had a very strong role to play in creating the yeah. federal reserve yeah so okay well first of all we let's give a little history so we're going to talk about the 16th amendment all right so let's let's read it first and this one's actually a lot um shorter a lot shorter so 16th amendment of the constitution the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. So pretty much one run-on sentence that is super drastically broad. changed the way that we look at the federal government and our country as a whole. How in the world did they get this passed? Interesting question. All right, let's go back to a little time in 1861 because this was this what actually went through in... Um, it, it went through Congress in 1909, and it was ratified in 1913. Because remember, uh, if you're going to pass a constitutional amendment, it has to go through the House, has to go through the Senate, and then it has to go out to the states, and you have to have um, two-thirds of the states. I got that right, right? Yeah, two-thirds of the states have to actually approve it at their state legislative level before you actually ratify it and it gets added to the Constitution. So this is not just about achieving certain supermajorities in Congress. You you know you you need a supermajority of the states as well in order to uh, pass this. So, but the first income tax in America was actually kind of crazy. It was a first federal income tax was created in 1861 during the Civil War as a mechanism to finance the war effort. In addition, Congress passed the Internal Revenue Act of 1862, which created the Bureau of Internal Revenue, a predecessor to the modern-day IRS. The Bureau of Internal Revenue placed excise taxes on everything from tobacco to jewelry. Following the end of the Civil War, the income tax did not have substantial support and was repealed in 1872. Now, a lot of people... I don't think it was repealed. I think they had like a sunset clause in there. Yeah, yeah, just went went away, went away. But the, the bottom line was is that this is interesting because I look at this and like, how in the heck did the Supreme Court justify this the way it was actually written up? And I think this is one of those cases is the Supreme Court didn't want to take away the funding mechanism to fight the civil war. To fight war. the civil war, yeah. And so they found, you know, strange justification. I don't actually think, I could be wrong, but I don't actually think that there was even a case that went to the Supreme Court during the civil war yeah, no, over the income tax. And so yeah. there was there was that's, one later, though. There was the Pollock case well, it, in, in yeah. the 1890s. In 1894, Congress passed. So again, so you had a Supreme, you had a, um, you had a federal tax, you know, it, it managed to stay in place, even though I, I don't understand how it could. I don't understand how anybody could perceive that as being constitutional. Went away in 1872. In 1894, all right, so we're talking about like, you know, over 20 years later, um, Congress passed the Wilson-Gorman tariff, right? So this is a tariff because Congress had the ability, the way that Congress predominantly raised taxes before the federal income tax was through like excise fees, tariffs, right? It was it was taxes on foreign goods coming into the country. So they established a tax rate of 2% for annual incomes over $4,000. So 
So you're probably asking yourself, wait a second, you've got a tariff act. What are you doing assessing a federal income tax on top of that? And the Supreme Court said the same thing. And it was challenged in 1895. Supreme Court came in and said, you, you can't do that. It violates kind of the, the apportionment requirements because the way that they had to do taxes, like they could do taxes by tariffs. If they were taxing anything in the states, they, they essentially had to take into account populations of each state. And one state, after that apportionment, one state cannot be taxed at a higher rate than another state. Right. So just because uh, uh, just because the population in a particular state might have had more money to tax doesn't mean you could tax them more than a state with, you know, less wealthy people. Right? It's also worth uh, noting that at this time, uh, Grover Cleveland was president yeah. and Cleveland was a strong supporter of tariff reform. Yeah. And so what they did, they, they've been doing these games for over a century. What, what Congress did was is that they knew that Cleveland had had campaigned and been elected president. Well, actually, he had won three times, but they stole the second one. They actually did steal the second one. But anyway, he had he had uh, campaigned and won the presidency on campaigning for um, cutting tariffs because at the time that was a big, big political issue, and that's a whole other discussion. But um, Cleveland was also a pretty small government-minded guy. He was he was in the same mold as somebody like like Calvin Coolidge would come along a few decades later, and um, in order to to get this income tax in because. The, the supporters of this knew that, A, it was legally questionable whether or not this was even allowed, and B, they knew that they would never be able to get a straight-up bill establishing an income tax over Cleveland's uh, veto pen. So what they did was is that they crammed the income tax into a tariff reform bill yeah. that Cleveland had had de- had basically said, this is a must-pass piece of my agenda. Like, like, this has to be signed into law because he had, like, made it the centerpiece of his presidential campaign and the biggest issue of his administration. So they crammed in this thing that they knew that Cleveland would never support, and Cleveland was so upset by it, but he also knew that this this tariff reform bill needed to be passed, that he allowed it to be passed into law without his signature. Um, He he refused to sign it, but he also refused to veto it, and he allowed it to be passed without his his action because he he couldn't go back on his word to oppose the tariff bill because it was one of those things. It was a Save the Puppies Act type of thing, right? And so he, he had no choice from his point of view but to let it be signed, be passed into law. But he refused to sign it because he did not support the income tax yeah. whatsoever. And then it was challenged almost immediately. Yeah. It was challenged because there was nothing in the Constitution at the time that gave Congress the ability to levy an income tax. And so there was a Supreme Court case. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court. It was the Pollock case. I can't remember who it was that, that challenged it. Well, but it's, it's, well, here's the thing. Like, yeah, it got challenged. And so they, they knew they needed to – so, again – Congress wanted to do this, especially the progressives. They, they wanted a federal income tax. Um, and it was interesting because the way they went about it, you know, they, they didn't just, you needed to amend the Constitution because they, they kept doing stuff like this. And other legislators kept going back like, why are you submitting these bills? The Supreme Court just struck it down. If you submit another one next year, they're just going to strike it down again. And so all of a sudden, now it's like, okay, now we're looking at a constitutional amendment. Well, there were some people that opposed the federal income tax that actually supported putting it into a constitutional amendment because they thought there was no way it would pass the state ratification process. Well, they were wrong. Thanks a lot. Quick so, question. What, when, when Congress wanted to impose this income tax, what, what were they trying to spend money on at the time? Okay, so... To, can I take a step back for Absolutely. just a second, and then I will I will be answering this at the end of this. So the guy that introduced the income tax yeah. in Congress in 1909, and it, and it took until 1913 for it to be ratified because it had to be passed by both yeah. chambers and then sent to the states, and the states had to ratify it, and it took him a few years, right? The guy who introduced it um, was a U.S. senator from Rhode Island named Nelson Aldrich, or, or uh, um, Aldrich. Um, it's, it's hard to say it's A L D rich Aldrich. Okay. (laughs) Nelson Aldrich and Nelson Aldrich was basically the Emmett hanger of the U S not in Virginia. Won't get that, but (laughs) I'm trying to think of it. He was, I'm trying to think of another example, but, um, Lisa Murkowski. (laughs) I can, I I can throw out some examples. Liz Cheney. How about Liz Cheney? Yes. He, he was. He was super conservative in some ways, but always for the wrong reasons. Yeah. He was like a big business supporter. He was in the yeah. pocket of a lot of industries. So like when he opposed the income tax a few years before, it it was it was for the the it, 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 he opposed it 
because he was being bought out by certain people, yeah. not because it was, I'm on principle, I support small government. He did not support small government whatsoever. The guy was a progressive in almost every single respect. In fact, Alderich was the guy who basically constructed the Federal Reserve. Yeah, He was the guy that, that was, um, I believe he was one of the only, he might have been the only um, elected representative that was at Jekyll Island in uh, 1910. That's uh, a whole other episode. Yeah. And so long story short, like, this guy, like, just look him up. There's there's so many stories. It would take a whole podcast to talk about him. But He's a crony. Yeah, he's a big-time crony, big-time progressive, liberal Republican. We would compare him to somebody like Murkowski today. Um, super influential and powerful. And he introduced this because he didn't want a um, higher uh, – he, he wanted to lower tariffs because at the time, tariffs were the primary way that, that revenue was generated. And he also wanted to um, finance a larger government in general. And in particular, some of his political allies, uh, including Teddy Roosevelt and William Randolph Hearst, who was a huge supporter of his, really wanted to beef up the U.S. military. Yeah. Um, to answer your question. Interesting. Okay. And so what was happening at the time was is that you're, you're talking about the turn of the century. It was, you know, it, it was in the, the first decade of the 1900s. And all of these big European powers were busy building dreadnought battleships and raising armies of two million men. Even the the Austro-Hungarians had a sea-going navy, right? And and all of these people um, were like, well, it's you know the U.S. needs a larger government too, and we need a larger military, and we need to go. You know, we we just fought the Spanish, but you know we're scared about the Japanese in the east and the Germans. Or, or, you know, getting involved in, in our neighborhood and, and the British and the French and the, and the Austrians and the Russians. And, and so th there was this, this idea that the United States could not really establish itself as a great power. I mean, we were a great power, but we were also a bit of an isolationist one. We, we kind of ignored the rest of the world. We traded with them, but we, we weren't going out there colonizing Africa and the Pacific or anything. And so the idea was is that we would fund this big military and make the U.S. a big power through an income tax. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, and, and there was always the typical claims for infrastructure too. That was that, that was always an, oh yeah, was an, yeah. Always an issue. But yeah, a, a lot of this you'll notice the first first federal income tax in U.S. history was to support a war, and the the second you know when we altered the Constitution to actually create a permanent federal income tax, a, a large part of the justification for it was military spending, military and infrastructure spending. Oh, fun! What, one more thing, fun fact: Aldrich was a huge investor. In mines in the Congo during the reign of Leopold II. Oh yeah, okay. That's a, <laughs> and by fun fact we mean horrible, horrible yeah. fact, horrific because, fact. Because yeah, the, the Belgian government was horrible to those people. Anyway, let, let's let's stay focused, Christian. All right. <laughs> I just wanted so, to get across like like, like what type of guy this he was. But yeah. the debate that we're about to have is which amendment was which worse. amendment was but, worse. Hold and on, it, now wasn't there somebody? Sorry. <laughs> what and it gives me this look like oh, I'm trying to get to my point. Uh, wasn't there someone who was it that wanted to cap what they could tax? So yeah, it's important to understand there was all kinds of debates that were going on. You know, they they were talking about like when they first put this out, they put out the form 1040, which we all know has been used ever since the the, the first time they started doing this. It was they they thought it was complicated back then. And then they passed the Revenue Act of 1916, and this began the practice of adjusting tax rates and income scales. You know, the original income tax was 1% for the bottom bracket, which was a comprised of income up to $20,000, right? And then it was 7% for the top bracket, which was comprised of income for over uh, $500,000. Originally, when they were having this debate and they were talking about like actually putting caps on it, like in the Constitution, there was a concern that, oh my gosh, if you put a 3%, you know, cap on it, the federal government might actually tax the whole 3% because originally the way that they were justifying this tax is like, no, 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 there's just going to be a tax on wealthy people. Most people are not even going to pay it, but we're going to huh. get a military. We're going to get infrastructure. We're going to all these great things. It'll be fine. This is always how it's sold, right? Yep. It's always sold when you're trying to get popular support for something like this, a, a massive transfer of power to the federal government. The way you sell it is, no, no, it's not going to affect you. Um, except in positive ways, you're going to get more money. You're going to get better roads. You're going to get better schools. You're going to get better, whatever. No, no, we're, we're going to take it from these people, right? And we don't like these people anymore because, you know, they're wealthy, gilded age, you know, whatever. So that is, that is how they, they made, they got popular support 
for an income tax that if you look at now, oh my gosh, right? Like we'd be we'd be thrilled if they were only taking 3% of our money. Yep. And not only that, but as soon as they got the ability to 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 levy these taxes, it started to affect other things because the Revenue Act wasn't just about federal income tax. It also created what is widely considered the predecessor to the modern estate tax, also known as the death tax, right? So not only are we going to tax you for your entire life, we're also going to tax you when, when you, you die. die, right? And this was something that we've talked about this before. This is really, really harmful for people that are what we call like land rich, but cash poor. Right. So for instance, you, you've you got, you know, 5,000 acres in production for a farm, 1,000 acres, doesn't matter. And then you die and you got to transfer this over to your kids. Well, it turns out you need all 1,000, 2,000, whatever it is, acres in production in order to make it a viable farm. But now because they're inheriting it, you've got to sell off portions of it. So now you you, you break it up. You have to sell portions of it yeah, in order to pay the tax. It, it ends up, but anyways, there, there was all of this other stuff that, that ended up coming in. But this, the reason why I maintain that this is by far and away the worst addition to the Constitution is because this is what created a mechanism whereby the federal government got to reach into your pocket as an individual, right, in, in a very personal way because now they got to track your income in order to tax it, right? they got to, they got to have huge federal bureaucracies. I mean, we just talked about this. We gave $80 billion, $80 to, the billion dollars to the IRS. That is more than Putin used to invade Ukraine, Right. We, we gave the IRS more to invade your bank account than Putin used to invade Ukraine. All of that came from here. And then the worst part about this, the absolute worst part about this, was the federal government now had a mechanism to take from individuals, regardless of what state they were in, without any sort of apportionment concerns. And then the federal government could now require people to do things or states to do things that they had never been required to do before. Not because they had constitutional authority to do it, because Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution lays out very specific enumerated federal powers. So now what the federal government did is like, no, 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 we're not, we're not forcing you to do that. We can't do that. The Constitution limits our, our ability. No, no, no. We're just saying if you don't do it, you're not going to get all this federal spending. You only get this federal spending if you do what the federal government mm -hmm. wants you to do in your state. I'm also concerned about the privacy concerns that you got to. And by the way, yeah. so was the Virginia House of Delegates in 1910 when they voted down yep. the amendment. Wow. I actually pulled up a newspaper clipping from the Washington Herald. It's now a defunct newspaper, but it, it, it was basically the Washington Post of its time, except actually good. Um, <laughs> and, and they ran an article. I actually read it in the middle of this episode. It's, it's relatively short. I'm just going to read like the last two paragraphs of it. It's talking about the vote that was. So, by the way, Virginia, to its credit, never voted to ratify the 16th or 17th Amendments. Wow. In fact, they no, never even brought the 17th up for a vote. They did bring up the 16th for a vote, and they voted it down. And here's what the, the story had to say. It was, it was March 7th, 1910, when they voted down the income tax. The end of this story's paragraph says, the speakers for the proposition, they're talking about the amendment, told of the unrest which is existing in the opinion which prevails that the government is administered for the benefit of a favored few of the justice and fairness of a levy that would reach the swollen fortunes with which nothing else can touch of the fact that the civil war is over and that the prejudices of the past have no place in the life of the present at times it seemed that these utterances would find favor on the other hand the opponents were afraid to trust the Republican Party with control of the <laughs> revenues of in, uh, from incomes. They remembered of the days of oppression following the Civil War, and they were afraid of northern officials who would examine into the private affairs of our citizens. They feared that this amendment would be a surrender of the rights of the states. By wow. the way, at the time, the Virginia House of Delegates was 86 members were Democrats and 14 were Republicans. Wow. It was a very, very Democratic, you know, it was part of the Solid South at the time, but yeah. but... Notice how the arguments that were in there on both sides are very similar to the arguments that you hear today. Um, to your point, the two biggest arguments that were used in, on the floor of the Virginia House of Delegates to kill the amendment back when it was being proposed were privacy concerns and states' rights. It was the 10th Amendment and it was the 4th Amendment. And the arguments that were used in favor of the amendment were, were the same arguments that you hear today. They're the same Bernie Sanders-style talking points. This country's rigged in favor of the powerful and rich, and that's why we need more government that the powerful <laughs> and rich can influence I, yeah. I point is is that we've seen if you just take a, a moment to like examine history and like read stuff that that took place long before we came into existence or long before our parents were around it's it's so fascinating how 
the the times have changed, the technology has changed, but human nature has stayed the same. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, you read something off like that, and there's people that will hear this and come to the conclusion that, oh, so the racists didn't want yeah. the federal income tax, right? And the progressives did. Like, <laughs> the key issue here, the fundamental question that needs to be asked, and this is, again, going back to our earlier conversation on the 17th Amendment and talking about why do we have these deliberations. It's because the ability for the federal government to tax at that point was affecting a, a incredibly small portion of the population, right? That's how this was justified. And we were going to get common benefits that was, was going to go to the, the benefit of all. But we were still keeping the, the primary structure in place with respect to the role of the federal government, the role of the states, the role of the individual, et cetera. And in, in just a couple decades later, all of a sudden, the federal government was funding some of the most massive interventions into the economy, interventions into private life. I mean, this was 1916 is when the revenue, act, so we got 1913, the federal income tax comes into play. And all of a sudden, you've got all these massive federal bureaucracies that explode. Within one lifetime. Within one lifetime as a result of World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, right, that never went away to the point where in 1942, you have a Supreme Court ruling that the federal government can now regulate the contents of your garden under the Interstate Commerce Clause. Right. So much of what the federal government has has done that has been a horrible intervention into, again, the private lives of its citizens, into the economy, et cetera, would not be possible if they weren't able to take to tax people like this. Ninety percent of the federal budget literally would not exist today if there was no income tax. And, it, and people will look at that and be like, oh, my gosh, we wouldn't have any roads or a military. No. Or OK, first of all, <laughs> we had roads, we had militaries, we had schools, we had hospitals, we had all these things. And those things were continuing to, to expand. But we recognize proper jurisdictions for certain things. We also didn't have the massive welfare warfare state that we currently yes. have that Ron Paul talks about. The yeah. reason that the United States can engage in a two-decade-long, two-front war in the Middle East is because the federal government can take money from right. its citizens without apportionment to the and states. And print it. And print it, too. Yeah. By the way, um, you know, so so go, briefly, from the episode that we did um, last time, the, the whole um, uh, debt monetization scheme, that was actually— one good thing that came out of the FDR administration was the, the the one component of the Banking Act of 1935 that banned debt monetization by the Federal Reserve. And that was finally repealed in 1981. And when you look at all the graphs and charts showing like, oh, wages stay stagnant, but then, you know, this shoots up, cost of living and everything. Notice how they all began in the late 70s and early 80s, yeah. around the same time that we came off the gold standard and we started letting money printer go burr and yeah. we, we let the Federal Reserve just run run wild. Like the, the, the origins of all of the stuff that we were talking about yesterday and that we've talked about in a few other of our previous episodes find themselves in the in the same contents and era that we're discussing in today's episode, it all it all goes back to to just over a hundred years ago during the Progressive Era. All of this. Well, and this is this is the main takeaway I want people to understand about the federal income tax because I, again, I think most people think today, well, but, but I want a military, I want good roads, and nobody's suggesting that we shouldn't have you know roads, right? But th this all becomes a cost benefit analysis question. It, it's not that roads didn't exist before the federal income tax. It's not that the military didn't exist before the federal income tax. You, you didn't create, you know, better services for everybody. You didn't create more money by doing this, right? You gave the federal government more power to assert its will over everything. And Joseph's story, um, when he was in the Supreme Court, one of the, the first Supreme Courts in the United States, made a comment that the ability to tax is the ability to destroy Right? Because there is, a, there is a certain level to which nothing can survive a certain level of taxation. And when you gave this very, very broad authority to the federal government, you essentially destroyed, and, and I think that did far more to destroy or, or undermine, I won't say destroy, undermine federalism, but it also undermined the enumerated powers of the federal government. Because if you tell me today, Hey, you're you're not allowed to tell me what to do on on these things. You're only allowed you're only allowed to have an opinion on on these, you know, Article One, Section Eight. 
All right, so when it comes to postal roads or when it comes to national defense, okay, you you can cover those things, but you don't tell me how to educate my kid. You don't right. tell me how to what my health care looks like. You don't tell me. That's not your business. And I say, okay, you know what? I agree. Not a problem. However, I can take your income. And so I'm going to take 40% of your income. Or, you know, if it's federal tax, maybe 20%. But then there's an estate tax. Oh, I'm going to take some more there. Oh, and, and there's also sales tax. corporate taxes. And there's, there's well, sales tax is primarily state, right? But okay. There's all these things. I'm going to take those taxes from you. But don't worry, I'm going to give some of it back in the form of goods and services. But you only get it back if you educate your kids the where the places I think you should educate your kids. That's what's happening with the school lunch program. You only yep. get you only get it back if you are a part of the the you know the hospital network or the program that that I say that that we help manage. You only get it back if you spend your money on transportation in these ways. Okay, well at that point the enumerated powers are become something of a joke. Mm-hmm. And, and as much as people might say, oh, but we want to have the interstate. No, you can still have the interstate without this. You would have had to go through a much longer and more deliberative process. And we have, we have taught people to think that when there's gridlock in government, that's a bad thing. No. And again, I'll quote George Will on this. He goes, American gridlock is not an American political problem. It's a political achievement. Because at the end of the day, you're, you're trusting politicians to use force and to punish people for noncompliance, to spend your money in ways that you might not want. And so that long, drug-out, deliberative process is there to make sure that we have actual buy-in and consensus on what we're doing. And we're ensuring that the wrong elements of government are not trying to do things they were never created to do because of all the problems that that inherently creates, because of the temptation that you create within these government bodies. Because then you grow up the, the, the federal bureaucracy so large that now all of a sudden it's bureaucracies writing most of the laws that you're living under. Congress just gave them authority to do it. How can they get away with any of that? Because they have a federal income tax that completely separates the original limitations that they had on their power. Now, if they can't, if they can't threaten you to do what they want, if they can't punish you for not doing what they want, as far as through the law, they can't put you in jail for not doing what they want, but they can take all your money and then they can bribe you with your money. If that sounds a little bit like extortion, it's because that's what it is. This is a form of glorified extortion in many respects. It does sound like extortion. And we also said, told people we were going to have a debate, and this hasn't sounded like a debate. Well, Christian Christian argues that he thinks the 17th Amendment did more to undermine federalism. I think the 16th Amendment did more to undermine federalism. why do you think under, that? Under because federalism. I look at the totality of what has been passed through congress because quite frankly the income tax i mean we now know that i mean with the federal reserve system that you don't need to balance the budget to spend a whole bunch of money we haven't been doing that for a very long time so the income tax is not necessarily a mechanism a mechanism through which you can restrain the size of government because the federal government has already demonstrated that they don't i mean they don't meet their revenues already with the income tax and we're already spending like two trillion more a year than we're we're taking in so even if you were to get rid of the income tax, I would obviously be better off for that. I would love it, but it wouldn't shrink the size of the federal government overnight because the federal government is already spending more than it's taking in. So so I, I, I look at, at the fact that there's so many horrible, horrible laws that have been passed over the last hundred so years that almost certainly would not have been enacted had the senators that voted on it been answering to their state legislatures mm-hmm. rather than to the 16th amendment passed before the 17th. I know I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm talking about later works? laws. I'm talking about things oh. like Obamacare. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. talking about things like right. the great society. Those things probably would not have been passed into law. Had the state legislatures still been, been the ones that can throw senators out of office. Here's why I disagree with that. The federal reserve act, <laughs> right. Or the, the, the act that gave us the federal reserve. Mm-hmm. And the 16th Amendment was, was both given to us before we had the 17th Amendment. Mm. So we, we proved that they could do incredible damage. I'm not saying that no beforehand. damage could be done. No, no, I, I know you're not saying that. I, I'm saying that, again, when, when I look at, so let, let's say that we still have the federal income tax, because that's what this debate comes down to, right? If you can only get rid of one, which would you get rid of? I get rid of the 16th Amendment because I think that had far more influence in undermining not just federalism, but the, the way people looked 
at what the federal government was responsible for. Because now if I'm getting a significant amount of my transportation funding or my education funding or my healthcare funding, if I'm getting a, a significant amount of, of, of all of that from the feds, well, all of a sudden the federal government is where I'm spending most of my time and attention. And that by its very nature, I feel, undermines federalism in a way that the popular election of senators doesn't, doesn't approach the same scope. So I have a, I have a question real quick. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the 16th Amendment spurred the 17th? And the reason I ask is because the 17th Amendment, uh, so basically those senators would have been the roadblock between, hey, let's go ahead and tax. And they're, they're, they're the mouthpiece for the state, right? If they were the roadblock, it makes sense that they would want that roadblock removed and they would want them fully on the side of the federal government instead of being accountable to the state so much. Do you think they're linked? I, I, I do think so. If you look at what a lot of U.S. senators were doing prior to the, like, okay, what was a U.S. senator's job? What did it mean to represent the states? Well, there, there was always a lot of talk about, like, because there were federal, there were federal dollars for things. And a big part of this Senate's job was to go up there or, or U.S. Senator's job was to try to get dollars, right? Bring home the bacon. Um, well, now with the federal government having a lot more bacon, and then you also have the popular election, I, I, don't, I don't know that one... I, I don't know that one was dependent upon the other. Um, I, I think that the, the arguments that were given were still... The arguments that were made for both were very progressive um, in, in, in a variety of respects, but I don't think they were dependent upon one another. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't, didn't. I, I wasn't saying dependent. I don't, know, okay, I I don't was, know the degree that they contributed to one another. Let me put it that okay. way. I don't know the degree that they contributed. I think they both contributed to um, undermining federalism. The the reason I wonder is because basically the senator was the state representative to the federal government, mm -hmm. and the Congress was the people's representative to the federal government. Uh, so, if you have the state saying, hold on, you're not going to raise these taxes for this because we don't care that New York wants that. My state wants this. Well, if they could reduce that and, and make it something where, no, 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 we're all senators and we're all, yeah. you know, we're all the federal government. And so this is one big slush pot and you get to get your hand in it too. Yeah, you know? no, I, I, I could see that. I could see that as an argument. I, I don't know how I don't know how influential that that argument might have been at the mm. time. Like, I just don't know the answer to that question. I was just talking about motivations. Yeah. Okay. Well, so Christian just I agrees mean, I'm right. No, I, I <laughs> if I had to pick between one or the other, I would probably repeal the 16th. But I do think that in terms of a a the political, I'm I'm more focused right now on on the political structure of the country itself. If you're talking from like an economic standpoint, then. Yeah, I think that the 16th Amendment was way worse than, I mean, I think the Federal Reserve Act is ultimately probably the crowning achievement of worst things ever economically. <laughs> but, but like, like the 16th Amendment was, was horrible from that point of view. So like, yes, I would agree with Nick insofar as if I had to pick one, I would get rid of the 16th Amendment. But in terms of like the immense amount of damage to the Federalist structure, that we've seen over the last century, I think the 17th Amendment has, yes, I do think the 17th Amendment has largely destroyed federalism. And I think that is a huge part of the problem that we have in this country. We do everything in D.C. That, that's, that's why this country is starting to like disintegrate, it feels like, because everything is being done in D.C. No matter what, at least half the country will be dissatisfied. Right now, it's the whole country's dissatisfied. But, but even if one side gets their way, the other half hates it. Mm -hmm. And then they'll win True. an election in a few years and then they'll impose their will on the other half of the country. There's this meme that I saw once where it was the, the you know, people with like an R&D shirt and they were like, I really hope that my side wins the next election so I can impose my will on the other half of the country or else I'm going to get angry. And <laughs> and like that is not what this country is supposed to be about. This country is supposed to be we are a republic of republics where we have a very limited number of things outlined in Article 1, Section 8 that's supposed to be done at the federal level, very limited number of things, and everything else supposed to be either the purview of you as an individual or your state government. And then some of that stuff, obviously, through the federal government, or, 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 or sorry, through the local governments, but that, that's handled through, you know, state constitutions determining what's local power versus state power. The point is, is that in terms of government power in general, 90% of it should be at the state or local level, and only 10% should be at the federal level. And that 10% is explicitly outlined in the constitution. 
And now I feel like that it's the we've got an inverse pyramid where it's 90 percent is at the federal level. And it's only that 10 percent that it's at, at the state or, or, or local level. And I'm 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 being I'm exaggerating yeah. for effect here. But my point is, is that a pyramid that's shaped like this can't stand for much longer. Yeah. Upside down. Well, for those I, who can't see you yeah. holding <laughs> your hands like this. So I'll 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 kind of close with this. I think the only reason why the federal government gets away with doing all the only legal reason why it gets away with doing all those things, take, take away all the bad Supreme court decisions that allowed for an expansion of federal power that didn't exist through bad interpretation of the constitution. Um, when, when Christian talks about the federal government doing things that it was never designed to do and, and that theoretically legally and constitutionally, it shouldn't do the argument that it comes back with is we're not telling you, you got to do it. We're only telling you, you don't get the federal funds if you don't do it. Right. And, and, that wouldn't be possible without the federal income tax. It just wouldn't. And so now you have a population that is automatically inclined to look toward the federal government to solve problems because it's the one with all the money. It's the one with this incredible amount of power. It just seems like it, it would make sense to people that if, if I'm getting my Social Security check or my Medicaid check or my Medicare check, if I'm getting you know, the, these little goodies that the, that the government hands out from time to time with respect to stimulus checks, if they're the ones that control the currency, well, then, of course, they're the place I go to solve problems, right? And, again, I don't think that is possible to the degree that it has become possible without the federal income tax. Makes sense. And so, ultimately, what this comes down to is if, if you wanted to design a way that didn't even didn't necessarily set out to undermine federalism. You can make a much more obvious case that the 17th Amendment undermined that, that, that structure of government. But as far as the incentive structure with respect to how the federal government now can operate, how they can manipulate, how they can extort, not possible without the 16th. And, and so ultimately that has led to situations now where it has empowered the federal government to do a number of things that it is obviously not good at. Not to mention doing a bunch of things that it shouldn't do. And it is no coincidence that at the same time the federal income tax was coming into place, you also had the Federal Reserve Act setting up a central banking system that has ultimately led to inflation. Um, at, at, it's been a problem through a significant portion of American history since the Fed came into to play. But we're, we're now seeing record high levels that just wouldn't be possible with all of this. And, and so... When I say two things to hate about the Constitution, the 17th and 16th Amendments, if prohibition was still in there, I would also say that would be one too. <laughs> but, but no, the 17th and 16th Amendments have, have, I think, done more to undermine what the country was supposed to be about. Because again, the purpose a free society is not defined as one where citizens have the privilege of electing political leaders every two to four years. It's one where we're maximizing individual liberty and choice and freedom. And it's really hard to do that when you have a federal entity that can essentially tax you to death or do what the federal government has now been doing for, for a very long time, which is essentially saying, I'm going to take from you in order to buy the votes of you over here. And when you create this environment where, where now the, the federal government is comprised of a number of people that think that that is their primary job, my job is to punish a smaller group of people in order to pay off a larger group of people because that political math, that political math will play out in perpetuity until the whole system comes burning down to the ground because you've created so much bloated government bureaucracy. You've created so many perverse incentives within your economy and your political system that it can no longer sustain itself. All right. I'm going to close it right there. Hopefully you have found this beneficial. And once again, I want to thank our members on Volley. Ben and Caleb, I want to thank, thank you ben. very much. I want to thank Ben for bringing this up. Caleb coming in with the assist. Um, I hope this was beneficial. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope everyone else enjoyed it as well. I, I really found this interesting. Well, I'm, I'm just going to say again, this is another reason to join the Volley chat. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of comments that people put on, and we really appreciate those, and we try to get to them all. But, man, when we can see someone come on that volley chat and just give us a quick one-minute, minute-30-second video yeah. and say, hey, I'd really like to know this, and not just say, hey, I'd like to know more about the 16th and 17th Amendment, but say, this is, this is what I'm looking at. This is what yeah. I want to understand about it. It allows us to do the sort of show prep necessary in order to hopefully answer that question in an effective manner. So, once again, go to the uh, description and uh, sign up. Join Volley really easy. It's free. 
Doesn't charge. Doesn't cost you anything. And uh, you'll you'll get to interact. And, and Christian and, has joined. Christian's joined now. I have. Did his? Yeah. Did his? I like, sent my first message actually. Just like, have you what, done your introduction video yet? No. What? See, he didn't. <laughs> My gosh, he did Chris, provide some really good context to another individual's volley. Though. It was he. He did provide good context. Just, just don't, don't expect him to follow directions. That's that's kind of. <laughs> I loved. I gotta say, I loved today's episode because we were able to talk a lot about like history right. and 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 it was just it was neat. I, I certainly like, keep the recommendations coming. I, I just find the idea fascinating that a legislature could elect that senator and then the senator is responsible to that legislature. I, I I find it very interesting. My my favorite part of this episode was like the part where you talked. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna end with the, the looking at, at some of these historical debates, like the fact that I was able to like pull up a newspaper clipping yeah. of of you know the the debate over the amendment in, in the Virginia House of Delegates over 100 years ago, and then reading that stuff and 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 the other stuff that we talked about too, and realizing that a lot of the debates that we have today are. Very, very similar to the debates that mm -hmm. we had over a hundred yeah. years ago. Politics has not really changed a whole lot in, in that amount of time. It's the same demagoguery that has plagued us over a hundred years. The means ago. of deception have grown though. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Uh, and the means of extortion, as I've explained. And that's why the sixteenth <laughs> amendment is worse than the seventeenth amendment. I win. All right. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.